What's going on, Faster Freedom Nation? Before we get into the show, I want to talk about a giveaway that we are doing. The link is going to be in the show notes below, but basically if you share the giveaway or like and rate the podcast, you are entered to win. The more you share, the more other people share your share, the more points you will get. And what you win, you will win two t-shirts, two Faster Freedom t-shirts, a Faster Freedom hat, an unreleased Faster Freedom mug, and two signed Faster Freedom Own Your Freedom books that I wrote. All really simple stuff, just simply for clicking a link. All right, back to the show. You're listening to the Faster Freedom Show, hosted by us, Sam Prim and Lucas Walls. Hello, and welcome to the Faster Freedom Show. My name is Sam Prim, and I have a special guest today. Um, he is known for two things: the 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 ring or the pointer finger and the middle finger. He's known for two things. He's known for two fingers. His name is a uh, Pace Morby. He's the sub two guy. Um, the first time I met him, he told me that he wanted something for Christmas. Pace, do you remember what you said you wanted for Christmas the first time we met? A uh, bird deal in St. Louis. No, you said all I want for Christmas is for Dave Ramsey to call me a liar on his show. That's that's what you said you wanted. Oh, I know, dude. I was so I love your content. I've been I've been watching it for probably a year. And when he called you out, I just was like, this just shows how un, not uneducated Dave is. I think Dave is a genius because what he's done is he's focused on the 99% of people in the world that are just deathly afraid of their own shadow. And he's leaned into that so hard. And he'll say stuff like, well, I have $200 million in real estate and it's paid off. I don't have debt. And it's like, Dave, if your audience generated $300 million a year in education sales, I'm sure your audience could also have $200 million a year in paid off free and clear real estate. That is not a reality for your, your audience. So why are you lying to them and giving them these, this, this false information? And the reality is your content and what you're talking about with acquiring and leveraging debt is so much more intelligent and what people really need. But that doesn't fit the narrative of what Dave Ramsey is doing. So I was just like, oh my gosh, this is so good because the people that saw him calling you out that are like, this Dave path is way too slow. I guarantee you they went over and followed you and you're like, this Sam dude is my guy. Oh, you're right. No, I loved it. He was he was punching down and he allowed me to punch up. So I love that. And I have nothing against Dave. He's a, a super smart guy. Like you said, uneducated is probably not the word. It's probably uninformed. It's probably more accurate of the word. And I think um, and I've sent people to his Entree Leadership Summit, by the way. I probably spent 100 grand sending my employees down to his Entree Leadership Summit for three or four years in a row. I think it's four grand a seat. Like people like Simon Sinek speaking, uh, President Bush, uh, uh, George W. spoke one uh, one time. There was a lot of really, really good speakers. And it's a really good, like, um, you know, uh, leadership and, you know, entrepreneur leadership event. And people that have gone, though, have said year by year, he's just gotten a little more crotchety, a little more stuck in his ways. And I don't know if it's like success or, if it's just people get that when they get a little bit older or, you know, that at some point and I'm doing my best to avoid it. And I know you are like you get a certain level of success, but you don't want to think that your way is the only way you have to be open minded to a certain degree. And I will always be that way. And I think he's going the other way on that. So it was uh, it, it was funny. And, and last thing on Dave, they'll move on. We don't need a, to harp on him too much. I want your opinion on this. So I saw a tweet the other day, Pace, that said Dave Ramsey is well on his way to becoming the first billionaire with no debt. And like that was like a brag or a flex. And I'm looking at it like, wait, he may become the one 
you know, centimillionaire or, you know, billionaire with no debt. Every single other one in the history of the world, in the history and the future of the world is going to have debt and leverage debt responsibly to get there. So let's do the path that everyone else does that's proven. And let's not try to chase the one outlier with a huge brand that like leeches is a little bit of aggressive of a word, but kind of pulls from the fear of people and their fear of debt. So anyways, what, what's kind of your take on that stat? Um, I think that's a really great way to put that is that he's the one guy that did it that way. Instead of everybody saying, oh, it can be done. Let's all do what Dave Ramsey did. Guys, he created a media empire that sells fear. Now, I don't hate, dislike, or am I even bothered by Dave Ramsey? I think he's one of the most intelligent marketers, genius businessmen. His team is phenomenal. He's got some of the greatest people in his company. The guy is amazing. However, again, going back to what I said before, this guy has created a one in a lifetime type of business that nobody else will be able to duplicate, especially in his audience. Whereas everybody can duplicate leveraging debt responsibly and they can become billionaires in their lifetime. I for sure the we just went through my family office and had like a trajectory meeting talking about where are we headed. If we keep on the same exact path that we're on now, I will for sure become a billionaire in my lifetime. And primarily that's because I'm leveraging debt on real estate and everything else pales in comparison. And it's because of the ability to leverage debt at a five to one or sometimes a 10 to one ratio that will allow guys like you, Sam, and me to become billionaires in our lifetime. Yeah, that that is and leverage that that's the main thing. That's like the number one skill that I have worked on and have gotten better at and obviously still have a lot of room to get better, but just leverage, leveraging everything, man. Like I always like joke, like I get 450 hours worth of work done every single day because I have, you know, 48 team members on, on my team, 40, 48 employees, and I am able to leverage other people's knowledge and other people's skills to get there faster and leverage other people's money to acquire more assets. And, and wealth comes from equity and assets. So you have to let that equity grow over time or you just, in, induce mass and volume into the situation and just do it very quickly. So then it will start to snowball. Yeah. I would assume you'll become a billionaire. Yeah, I think the Go other ahead. thing I didn't, I don't really appreciate about what Dave says is he says stuff like when you, when you hear these influencers talking about how their tenants paid down their debt, they are lying to you. They are absolutely lying to you. I'm like, dude, look, I have, I have 2000 doors in my portfolio. About 500 of those have partners. So I have 1,500 doors without partners, without private money lenders, without anything else. Who else is paying down the debt? There's 1,500 doors. If, if my tenants were not paying down the debt, I would be in a world of hurt. So I look at him and I, I just go, he's genius. The, the things that he says, he's so smart because what he's doing is the harder nosed he becomes around debt and he creates fear around that, the more people go into his funnel for his business. And that is his responsibility for being the billboard of his company. So I look at him, and I go, I see why he's doing it, but it is irresponsible to tell people stuff like that. That's the reason we buy real estate is to have tenants go out. And this is an interesting statistic. I learned this about two years ago. 37% of my tenants paycheck goes to paying down my debt. 37% of my tenants, 37% of their check pays down my debt. So Dave, where is that 37% going if it's not paying down my debt? Like it just, it, he's, he's a freaking genius. That's all there is to it.
He's a genius. And yeah, the, the one thing and uh, the, the biggest thing that I don't appreciate from him and some people is I just don't like people that speak in absolutes. It just kind of gets under my skin a little bit. You have to do it this way. This is the only way. Absolutes. The world is not an absolute place. There's so much variance and nuance and color and, and grayness to the world. It is not black and white. There is so much to it that I just don't appreciate people that, that that's the lens that they look through things. So, yeah, uh, we're on right. the same page with him. Like, um, yeah, like I, every single day. Um, my portfolio is not your size, but every single day, um, my the debt on my rental portfolio gets paid down about five grand every day. Then every single day, the properties go up at a three percent super conservative appreciate appreciation rate, five grand. So ten grand a, a day just happening because of real estate going up and tenants paying the mortgage down. We're not even talking about cash flow and debt and tax payments and tax savings. So it's it's a very powerful thing to responsibly leverage. Real estate is the path to the quickest path to become a, you know, a wealth and financial freedom. And uh, if you don't have money, the only way you're going to be able to do it is leverage. So um, I think I think we are definitely yeah, on the same page with too, that. You know, just talking about all the benefits. I always say that there's five benefits to buying real estate. One is cash flow. I really don't care about the cash flow. I'm sure you don't really care about it too much either. It's not the main driver for for people that are trying to build wealth, but cash flow is important. And a lot of people that are starting out, that's what they focus on is cash flow. Second thing is appreciation, which you just talked about. You're, you're building $5,000 a day in wealth through appreciation at a very conservative rate, which is awesome. Then your depreciation is number three, your tax benefits, which is awesome. I have not paid taxes in nearly six years because of that, which is amazing. Mm. I, I think 2024 will be the first year I cannot keep up with my act, my income versus how much real estate I'll buy. I just I, There's a point where you just can't keep up and I'll pay a little bit of taxes in 2024. The fourth thing is your pay down, right? Your loan pay down. That's the money while you sleep money. Right. That and that's number four. And then num number five is leverage, future leverage. I can now do a refinance at some point when rates go back down and I can suck out all this money. And obviously that's tax free. I'm sure you talk to your audience about that a lot. That money becomes tax free that I could go deploy into a lending business, you know, and charge twelve percent or fourteen percent just interest only. And it so it just duplicates and compounds and compounds and compounds. And what I do is I'll have conversations with people like my good friend, Cody Sanchez. She'll say stuff like, well, real estate isn't as good as buying a business because when you buy a business, you can be making $5,000 a day in cash flow or $5,000 a month in cash flow immediately. And I'm like, Cody, what, what's your criticism of real estate? She goes, well, all my real estate investor friends, they brag about making three or $400 a month in cash flow. And she's like, that's just not enough for me. I'm like, well, because you're not taking into consideration all of the other benefits mm -hmm. of real estate. There is nothing more powerful than real estate. You can't convince me otherwise. I've talked to everybody about every single strategy you can imagine. And real estate is the, in my mind, the only thing I want to put my money into besides maybe a lending business at some point, just, you know, have a big war chest of just money I lend out. That's it. No, I like it. That's what I that's what I tell people. You can diversify, but if you have the if you only have the focus or energy or time to spend on one thing, it needs to be real estate. Like I don't think people understand the 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 totality of that stat that I don't know how verified it is or able to be verified, but 90-ish percent of millionaires are created through real estate. So that means Forex, stocks, investing in your own company, starting your own company, IRAs, 401ks, um, you know, crypto, all of that stuff combined is 
everything else is is 90 the real estate so yeah the real estate if you can focus on one thing it's the best path the best path the barrier of entry you can have a you can have a zero credit score and wholesale from jail if you can figure out how to sneak a cell phone in jail which we're not going to go into that visual but you know like you can literally do it you can wholesale and do anything <laughs> you, you all you need is a phone and uh, you don't need a credit score you don't need money obviously that's a harder path it helps to have credit score and money but you can do it and i've known people that have done come from really really rough situations they're not going to be able to get where they got without real estate and it just has so much flexibility which we're going to get into the different strategies in that so yeah that's i think yeah we're on the same page on i think we're probably on the same page on pretty much everything um quick sidebar so are you really fluent in korean uh, I'm not lo I'm not fluent in Korean any longer, but I was fluent in Korean. I lived there for a couple of years. I was a Mormon missionary there for a couple of years and became a translator for pretty high up people and um, got really, really good at Korean. And then I moved to I moved back to America. And the challenge with Koreans is they don't want to speak Korean in America. OK, because what they do is they go to school. They Obviously, they go to school all day long. Then they go to school after school, after school, after school programs to learn English for 15 years. They then move to America and imagine this idiot going up to them and going, oh, my gosh, I want to speak Korean to you. And they're like, why are you speaking Korean to me? We're in America. It's very like a Korean thing. And so if you don't use it, you lose it. And so I'm probably I can carry a conversation. I can have all these things, but I constantly forget words or I mismatch things. And I just forget. It's been 20 years since I lived there, you know? Yeah, no, that is cool stat. We try to do some have some fun, um, you know, interesting stats outside of just the, the normal real estate questions you get. Um, so speaking of that, so I, this has been on my mind a little bit, Pace. I wanted to jam with you on it. So um, I, I I know that and I've heard that and you just you just affirmed that you you were a Mormon missionary and I, I'm religious. I go to church, but I don't I don't talk about it a ton on social media. And you, maybe you do. I, I watch your stuff. Obviously, I don't see everything you do, but there's the people like, you know, uh, Ryan Pineda, who I'm pretty good buddies with that, that that is going pretty hard into it and then you know like brandon turner um who i'm getting to know a little bit they, they talk about a little more and i don't think there's a right way or wrong way so i'm not trying to say you i should or you should do something differently but is there is there a reason why and i can give you my reasons is there a reason why um you don't talk about it as much on social media as others or am i just kind of missing those videos because um you know there there's certain things that i just kind of like to keep private so anyways i just wanted your opinion on that or what what your kind of thoughts were on that you know, it's interesting. Um, if let's just imagine, right? So Jesus comes down to earth and he says, all right, I need you to spread the word. I need you to spread the gospel. You're one of the apostles. And there's people out there that just hate Jesus for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. Right. And so you're going out there talking about Jesus, this and Jesus, that, and all of those types of things. And you're out proselyting and spreading the word. You are going to capture way less ears, way less eyeballs by going out and being gospel-y and churchy and talking about Jesus, especially in a world that doesn't love that stuff. And so here's what ends up happening. And I learned this on my mission, you know, talking about I would go around and go, hey, I'm here to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, you know, that kind of stuff. What I learned on my mission is that I baptized way more people. I got way more people to come into the church by going out into rice paddies and serving old ladies and setting a good example by my works rather than my words. And so I learned that very early on for my first six months of my mission, I would just be on the streets trying to proselyte and, and we call it jundo, which means proselyte. 
I would go out and just do Jundo and ultimately one day I go, you know what, let's go do some service stuff. I, I feel like just, let's just go serve some people. Let's take, you know, these gospel -y words out of our mouth. And then all of a sudden the whole town noticed these white people out in the rice paddies helping old ladies farm and till their land. And they started asking, who are we? What are we doing? And I realized, oh my gosh, it's the example we set is way more important than the words that we say. And um, somebody said to me on my mission, they go, of course that's the case because the saying goes, I can't hear what you say because what you're doing is so loud. I like and that. And so I, I decided to switch, switch it up and, and focus on how can I help out? Like, you know, for Thanksgiving this year, we're doing a 5,000 people in my community have volunteered to help out a charity called Family Promise by donating things and doing all that kind of stuff. And nowhere am I making it about God or Jesus or any of these things because it alienates people and people go, oh, this is a Jesus thing. Oh my gosh. It's like, you know what? If I just do the good work, I don't need to say anything about my belief because people will then come to me and go, dude, what? who are you? What's your background? How did you become this way? And then they'll come into the fold in a natural way. And so I look at Ryan Pineda, good buddy of mine. Him and I have come up together for the last six years. We've had a great relationship. Brandon Turner, really good buddy, came in. You know, he rarely texts back, but he's a non-texter, just FYI. He's a voice memo guy. So we'll, we've been talking for the last couple of years and become really good friends. And I'll introduce him to Dean Graziosi or these other amazing people and share relationships with each other. And it's been a really great relationship. I think what they're trying to do is they're trying to niche down to the people that are also religious, religiously oriented. They're trying to niche down, right? For people that are maybe either A, looking for purpose or B, are already walking in that purpose. For me, I go, you know what? You as an apostle or as a proselyter or as a, a believer, maybe I should say, as a believer, that's your strategy, right? There's 12 apostles. There's gonna be 12 different strategies, 12 different voices. So Ryan goes out and does his thing. My thing is I'm just going to open up my bucket as much as possible. People that are anti-religious, people that are, no, I'll never believe in that, or maybe even people that have been slighted by somebody else in the church that don't ever want to hear me bring up religion. I'm a good fit for them because I'm just going to show them my works and I'm going to show them what we do on a daily basis and then they'll come back into the fold. So that's been more my strategy than, you know, doing the Ryan Pineda or Brandon Turner um, thing, which doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means mm -hmm. I think they're trying to niche down to a smaller audience for sure. Yeah, no, that that's good. I just, I've just, that's what I've been kicking that around uh, a little bit personally. And then I thought, you know, I knowing you a little bit and know a little about your background. I just thought it'd be an interesting conversation because I'm a similar path to you and probably, honestly, I'm probably a little, maybe, maybe more insecure about it than you just, I, I just, I don't like it when people don't like me, which is, is it's a, it's a, not a good thing. Like there's obviously good situations to where like, it's good to be likable and you want people to like you, but sometimes I feel like it hinders me or a little bit like I just want everybody like me. So going super hard line into one topic or another, and I've played with that a little bit recently on social media on things that I do believe in, but just, just having those hard stances and alienating people is just not in my personality. And I think talking about religion at a super high level, super niche down does potentially do that. So I agree with you. And I'm more on like the actions that it takes and just leading a good life, because I believe that nobody knows exactly how 
things should be because there's the higher power of God and then there's people muck up everything, right? People screw everything up. Nobody knows that it's not even in our comprehension to fully understand it. So thinking that somebody knows the exact path, it's a human. They don't know. They're, they're, they're not going to tell you the exact way, uh, kind of like that absolutes we were talking about earlier. So anyways, I, I, I definitely yeah, want to- interesting. Like even looking at your Instagram story this morning and following your content- you and I are very similar. I just show my life. I show my, I'll show like what I'm doing with my kids, dropping off my girl to school and doing those types of things. And then people will DM me hundreds and hundreds of DMs a day. The constant thing is I can't wait to have a family like yours, right? So mm. it's essentially showing them the actions and showing them the values that I was born with rather, rather than preaching and talking about it because nobody wants to be preached to and talked to and it's the same thing with like real estate, right? What I love about you and real estate is that you're like, here's my examples. Here's my properties. Here's my this. Here's how many properties I own. Here's how much debt I own. You're showing your actions, which then gets people to believe it's possible for them, right? Instead of standing on a pulpit and going, you need, you need to be in real estate and this, that, and the other. And real estate, it's like just giving them facts is one thing, but showing them that you're doing it is completely more effective. And it's the same thing when I first started out when I would talk about the address and I would be at the property and I would say, hey, we're at 2720 North Sterling Avenue. I bought this property subject to, I put no money down. Here's where the lead came from. Here's the challenges I ran into. Here's a, re a recording of the call I had with the seller. Here's the recording of now the seller's testimonial once I accomplish it. Like you give people the, the goods by an action that you did and they will become more successful because they realize, oh, he's not lying. He's not, you know, preaching to me. He's actually giving me the goods. And it's one of the reasons why I follow follow you is because you show through your actions, both your values and who you are as a real estate investor. And it's the best way in my mind to get somebody's attention like me, a dude that's actually doing it. Yeah. And I think you do the, the, the similar thing is you have this huge brand, which which we'll get into here in a little bit. And and I and I'm going to want some advice. I'm going to be selfish for a second here after after I spit this out, though, like helping grow in the brand, because I'm I'm good at growing social media following. I like you said, I'm I'm good at making videos somehow like I'm not super articulate. I, I mumble a little bit, but I'm just like I'm me. I'm authentic and I, I am who I am in the videos. And I think people do tend to like that over all of this fakeness that they are seeing. Um, you know, I don't get the like, hey, I don't believe you. Hey, there's no way you own that much real estate anymore. I got that when I was starting just because of how much I had and nobody knew my name. Now some people know the name and they're like, yeah, no, he he's authentic and, and he's real. So I don't get like the disbelief anymore. Um, and you have absolutely um, gotten to that place to grow that brand. So I'm I'm doing pretty darn good on the following. Uh, you know, we probably have a similar social media following, but I would not trying to blow smoke. I would say your brand's 10 times bigger than mine, maybe 20. So what are some of the things that you have done? And I probably know some of it, but not all of it to grow that brand, like that sub to that Pace Morby brand. That is a freaking Dave Ramsey type brand, man. Um, and the, the Faster Freedom brand, we're, we're doing fine. And I'm not trying to compare. We're on my chapter and your chapter. We're on different chapters. But what are some advice that you'd give me and or just the things that you did to make your brand so ingrained and so strong and so, so, so enviable? It's awesome brand you have, man. Um, I do the things that people won't do, don't do, can't do. And I'll give you specifics on that. Um, in my free, I have a free Facebook group that I pour in 
I always have had a goal. I, I said, if you join my free Facebook group, I want you to feel like you got a hundred thousand dollar education in my free Facebook group, right? So giving people more value than what they've paid other people in a free content text has always been super helpful. But the number one thing, if I could go back and tell you a small story, the number one thing that impacted my brand so significantly was about five, maybe six years. Yeah, it was six years ago. And it was somebody that screwed me over on a deal here in Arizona. And I was upset about it. And I felt like, man, the real estate industry is very cutthroat. It's a lot of people stabbing each other in the backs. Very whole, like a lot of wholesalers will just steal deals from each other and whatnot. And so I was kind of spiteful, to be honest. And what I did is instead of me complaining about it, I decided, let me start taking people on ride-alongs. And so what I did on, on Instagram stories, this is right when Instagram stories started, I had very few following. I probably had 5,000 people follow me on Instagram, maybe. And I said, whoever wants to come in my Prius with me on Saturday, meet me at Circle K at 6 a.m. in the morning. I'll take you on appointments with me. I'll show you the business. Like, I'll just, just come in my car, right? And I posted that on Instagram. How many people showed up? Zero. I had zero people show up at six o'clock on a Saturday at, at Circle K. This is, that's just what happens. But I didn't let that stop me. What I did is I realized, you know what? People probably need proof that I'm actually doing this. So I then took a screenshot or not a screenshot, but a selfie of me with my Prius behind me in front of a house. And I said, Hey, the people in my Prius today are getting so much value. And I was actually kind of marketing that I had people in the car, even though I didn't. So I did it again next week, the following week, I got three people to show up. And just to show you how impactful this becomes, three people show up, Debbie Lou, Scott Garcia, and a gentleman named Tim. They all show up. They're like looking at each other in the Circle K parking lot. Are you here for pace? Are you here for pace? Are you here for pace? And now as I drove them around to my appointments and visit my contractors on some of my flips or you know my remodels on my refinances or whatever it is, I took them to appointments with my private money lenders. I showed them how I raise capital. Like it's 12 hour days on Saturdays for me, right? Back in those days. And so Debbie Lou to this day still is my number one private money lender. She's made millions of dollars just giving me money. She never wanted to be a real estate investor. She always just wanted to be a lender and be very passive. Scott Garcia was a wrestling coach at a school making 40 grand a year. Now he has a net worth of $5 million. And this came from doing free ride-alongs. And I'll tell you, I'll kind of tell you how Scott got there in, in a second. And then um, Tim was like, this is too much work. You do too much work. I don't ever want to do this. And he left the business. Okay. So I brought three people in, but those three people I was tagging on Instagram. And when I was tagging them on Instagram, people went to follow them on my story and DM them and go, are you really on a ride along? Did Pace really take you on a ride along? And now it wasn't me talking about it, Sam. It was them talking about it to five people, six people, seven people throughout the day saying, yeah, I'm actually here. He took me to an appointment. I watched him sign a contract. I watched him make $20,000 on a wholesale deal. I watched him do da, 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 right? The next week I do it again. And 63 people show up to Circle K on a Saturday morning at 6 a.m. And I go, this is a problem. Circle K thought this was a problem. They go, 
get the F out of here. We're calling the police. Is this some sort of gang fight that you guys are doing or something weird? I was like, no, we're just teaching real estate to people. And so um, I walk, I basically had everybody come over to my office. It was a really small office at the time. It was, we had 12 people working for us and I crowded our office. I ordered a taco truck and I just taught all day long right there in my parking lot and on a, on a big whiteboard. And I said, you know what I need to do is I need to just start having a meetup. So I start doing a meetup very similar to what you're doing, but this is maybe good advice for you at almost at this point. Okay. So I start getting the meetup going. It gets significantly sizable. It's filling out everything, every event that I could imagine our meetups. Like we started just going to our flips and filling our flips and having like three taco trucks, some waffle trucks, all sorts of stuff come out. I'd spend a couple grand every week just feeding everybody to come out to the event. And it was always like at a project because we outgrew my office. And then one day I realized that I, re I realized two things. One, I realized I was starting to get a lot of hate in my local market from the people that had been in the business much longer than me. And there's a, there's a passage in the Bible. I can't remember what it, what, what it is, but it basically says the, the, the um, pastor has no credibility in his own hometown, but will be rejoiced in other towns. And I started feeling hate. I started feeling the guys that were 10 years ahead of me, not liking me because I was making movement in the marketplace. And I was doing things that they should have been doing, but weren't doing. And I was creating a culture of go giving and helping people. And we were all doing deals together at this meetup. It was great. I would buy people lists. We would all call. We would call it power hour and we would just call, everybody would call and we'd get everybody on phone calls and like get them to implement. And I was, I had this t-shirt we made. It was information is worthless without implementation, which is another, you know, biblical thing, which is faith without works is dead. Right? So I, that's the first thing I realized. And the second thing I realized, Sam, is that people were flying from other states to come to my freaking meetup. And I'm, I guarantee that's happening. If you have 250 people going to St. Louis, you have people driving four hours, six hours, sometimes eight or 12 hours to come to your freaking meetup because you're doing something cool, right? So I realized these things and my buddy Jamil, this is six years ago, Jamil comes to me, he goes, dude, you're doing something nobody in the industry is doing. This is getting big. Why don't we take this show on the road? I go, okay. And so that year, this is crazy. I had an Instagram. I didn't have a YouTube. I didn't have a Facebook group. I didn't have any of the stuff I have today. I just had an Instagram. That's it. TikTok wasn't a thing. And Jamil and I said, let's go pay for flights and hotels and let's go city to city. And we'll call, a, we'll create a tour called the Pace and Jamil Do America Tour, like the Beavis and Butthead movie. Mm -hmm. And we made these funny t-shirts that um, we replaced Beavis and Butthead's faces with our faces, but it was, we had a cartoonist actually draw them. So we, it was like, it really looked like Beavis and Butthead, but it was obvious it was us. So beautiful. I should, I should pull up the graphic. I haven't posted about it in a while. And we started getting people requesting us to fly around the country. They were like, dude, you guys are making waves. This is crazy. People are, you know, you're coming out and just meeting in parking lots for three, four hours, sometimes till two o'clock in the morning. And my first year doing this, I spent 80 grand out of my pocket. And this is the stuff that people just won't do. I was taking wholesale money or rental income or whatever money I was making somewhere else. And I was pouring it into just 
getting out and meeting people. And fast forward to today, I have now this, this year alone, I have visited 112 cities this year alone. I have done 112 meetups with the average size about 500 people. It, they get monstrous, they get crazy. Um, New Jersey, there is always over a thousand people. We get the police called on us. Uh, Venice Beach, we had 1,100 people is the biggest one we've ever done. It was on the beach. Helicopters flew in, police officers. And it's just getting out there and actually meeting people because everybody else is trying to appease the algorithm. Meanwhile, I'm beating everybody because I'm going out there and physically meeting, hugging, shaking hands. Um, I get sick a lot because I'm meeting people that come out to the meetups that want to meet us and they're sick. Again, I do the things people can't do, won't do, don't do. And I just do it every day, all the time. And this year I've met over, I think we've, we've met a little over uh, 15,000 people in person. My videographer, Eric, you know, I got to a point where I started making money, enough money I could hire people to like come out and do it with me and fly with me. And I... He, he calculated how many shots, how many camera shots he took of individual people. So not like total shots, just how many people did I take photos with, with his camera alone, not with other people's phones. It's a little over 15,000 people I've stood next to, shook hands with, said, hey, I appreciate you coming out here. And I did the hard thing. I, I mean, I'm, I'm flying out to Los Angeles next week for three days to do the same thing. Uh, I'll be in Utah the week after. And it is hard. But... Then people ask me, how are you doing what you're doing and how do you have such a loyal following? And I'm like, well, first off, I don't call them a following. I call them my community. They're people that I've met. I know them. I've shook their hands. The, the fingers they're using to type on the keyboard on my YouTube comments are fingers I have touched. And that's a hard thing for other people to do. They just don't have the willingness to do that hard work. And part of it is I just love people just like you do. I know, I know you do too, Sam. And I'm crazy. I'm a freaking lunatic. What I did when COVID hit, I go, oh, I can't jump on flights. Oh, I can't do this. No problem. I'll buy an Airstream and I'll take my wife and my kids and we'll live in our Airstream for six months, traveling around city to city to city, jumping into people's offices, breaking down their business, whiteboarding with them, calling their sellers, going on appointments with them. And then I go to the next city for a week and then the next city for a week and the next city for a week. I did that three weeks or three years ago. Then I did it again this summer. I literally just go, all right, babe, my wife's pregnant. I've got two little girls and a son. I go, all right, we're going on the road for five months. And I just live in my truck and my Airstream. We travel through. I meet thousands of people. We do meetups with hundreds and hundreds of people. And what ends up happening is that those people, just like Debbie Lou and Scott Garcia, here's what ends up happening. Scott Garcia ends up meeting people at these meetups, right? He's the guy that became worth five million bucks. He ends up meeting people at the meetups. They end up start doing deals together because that's what people, humans need. We need physical proximity. This is why your meetup that you do in St. Louis, as you already know, is impacting more people's lives than you can even calculate. It, you have created a domino effect that you are putting food on people's tables that you will never meet in your life. That is unfreaking believable what you're doing. Now, you want to build a brand, you got to get out of your city because at some point your brand will grow big enough that your own city will try to basically kill you, lynch you. 
and it's the maybe you're the biggest player in St. Louis, so I don't know. But I, at the time, was not the biggest player in Phoenix. And so I would have the biggest players in Phoenix criticize me, and I realized, you know what I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do? I'm going to build a brand so big outside of the state that these people will hear about me as they travel to seminars and they travel around. And these big players, they'll text me and go, hey, man, you want to sit down? I want to pick your brain. The, pe- the same people that criticized me six years ago are now asking me to pick my brain over coffee. And they were the yeah. big players. And so I didn't do it for that. I did it because I really just truly wanted to get out and meet the people. And we still do it. If I don't do a meetup for a month in a different city, I, I get antsy. I get anxiety. And I realize it is the, it's the heart of my entire brand is physically meeting everybody. Oh, I love that. I think that's so. Yeah, we'll get you to St. Louis, like we talked about earlier. But a, a, two, a few things I took from that that was that was awesome. Um, one things I remember when you were when you were speaking on the family um, uh, family mastermind stage, and I I related to you more than anything else you said. Where when you said I'm you said I'm a lunatic. And I'm like, yeah, I tell people all the time something separate, but I'm like, I'm a psychopath. Like, how do you do it? Like, I just, I, I don't do the traveling thing. I need to get into that a little bit, but I like answer every DM. I do everything personally. And and for a while I tried to get away from that. Like, let's hire somebody else to answer my DMs. And it's like, my time is best used elsewhere. And then I came to the realization about six months ago, no, my time is best used doing that, connecting with people and sending them pictures of me, that it's me responding to them and and me doing that. So that's a huge um, thing that I'm taking at a smaller scale. And the other Bro, thing, while you're on that topic for just a second, yeah. I know you got yeah. some other things. My, do you know who Myron Golden is? Myron Golden, I've heard the name, yeah. Okay, he's he's an epic speaker. He's 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 one of the greatest speakers on the planet. And I, I he he's a hero of mine. And he sends me a DM a couple of days ago to me. And he replies back. Or I'm sorry. He says, "Hey, you're crushing this content, dude. I, I'm engaged. I'm in it. This is amazing. Keep it up. Four months later, he sends me another DM. This is now two days ago. He says, I will pay you to learn what you do. This is insane what you're doing, right? All this creative finance stuff. And I reply back and I go, dude, I would do, I'll just hang out with you for a day. Like, let's do a, let's do like a all day session with you and your team. Let's live stream it to your audience. Like, let's do, I'll give it all away for free. Let's go. And I'll call sellers. I'll I'll work with agents. Like, well, I'll get you a deal. I'll get you a fifty unit, one hundred and fifty unit seller finance apartment complex in six hours. Like, I will show you how easy it is to do this. It's not easy. It's simple. It's not mm-hmm. easy. It's hard to pick up that phone, right? And then he go he goes away for like three or four hours. I get caught up in my day, and the girl who helps me answer my DMs. She takes over because I'm now busy. I'm caught up in seven or eight hours of back-to-back-to-back Zooms or podcasts or meetings with my team or whatever. And he comes back into the DMs and he says, hey, where are you located? I'll just fly out to you. And she says, she replies back, live is Mesa. And his reply is, huh? She meant to say, live in Mesa. But that's the most inarticulate shit you could have ever <laughs> said to the greatest speaker I've ever seen. Yeah. Even even if even if you said live in Mesa, you should have said, "Oh, thank you. That'd be awesome. I live in Mesa, Arizona." Would be mm-hmm. the reply. But what happens is when you let somebody else take over your DMs, bless their freaking hearts. 
they will say stupid things to people that will reach out to you and they are a representation. And so this morning, and this girl just helps me two hours a day because my DMs get to a point where we'll get 500 to 1,000 DMs in a day, depending on the day. And I can't handle all of them. And so she will go through, it's like somebody just, you know, tags me on a thing or somebody does a thing or whatever else. And so she'll typically handle those. If there's a question, I voice memo myself. If there's a thing, I do it myself and she keeps them unread. But then she goes into Myron. She doesn't look at his profile. I don't have time to text her because I'm caught in my day to be like, hey, I, stay out of this DM with Myron. I, don't, I just didn't have the time because she's only in there two, two hours a day. Mm -hmm. And so the, the reality is you being in your DMs truly is so important. It is one of the most important things that you should continue to do. And when somebody says, oh, you should automate your DMs, I go, I don't automate the relationship with my wife. I don't automate the relationship with my children. I definitely am not going to automate the relationship with my customer. I'm not going to automate the relationship with my audience or my community. How dare I? They came to me. They took the time and they went through the anxiety to message me. How dare I throw it onto a VA that doesn't even know how to spell? Yeah. Right. No, and so I, yeah. I, you made that comment. It's very, it's very pertinent to like what I'm going through right now. So thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, no problem. No, that's a it's just one of those things where I thought I didn't think I was like too cool for it. I just thought I should be doing something else. But I think in order to continue to push that brand to where it should be with the following, those are the things I need to do and and travel a little more. I had a conversation with my wife a couple of months ago. I'm like, I'm going to need to start to do a few more speaking events and travel a little bit more. So I'm definitely going to start to do that and take her with me on some of them. But a, a funny story. So we yes, did. A, that's we, the solution is taking her with. And there's a couple of things I learned with that as well, is that when my wife comes with me 70 percent of the times i travel my wife and my kids are with me it's mm -hmm. more expensive but here's the cool thing is that there's women in the audience that don't want to listen to me they want to see what my wife has to say and so what now is happening is my wife is now getting people to ask her to speak and i go to show up and support her and so you guys showing up as a family unit you will be blown away by how and you already get this i'm sure but there's a lot of men that will come up to you and go sam how do i get my wife on the same page with me right? That's a common yep. question. And the answer should be, I don't know. Why don't you have your wife follow my wife? And if your wife doesn't have a following or she doesn't have an Instagram, these women won't have a place to communicate with your wife because they can't hear you, right? Men are from Mars. Women are from Venus. Women in the audience can't understand the words coming out of your mouth. They need to have a woman representing them. And so bringing your wife with you will be significant. Look what Grant Cardone does. Mm -hmm. Right. He empowers his wife to speak very loudly. She does a great job. I spent a lot of I text Elena, I don't know, a couple times a month. And she has softened his brand significantly. And before he had her involved, you would go to the 10X conferences and it's like 90% men. Now it's like 60% men, 40% women. And it's because of Elena. And it's a more inviting brand. And so suggestion there you're already working on it but the suggestion is see if you can get your wife maybe to even talk about family balance and you know how to support your husband and those types of things because the men in your audience need to hear that too
Yeah, for sure. It can reach a whole new, a whole new heights. And I remember you made me think of a funny story when, when I got started, I was a typical idiot. Like just, I didn't like, she didn't say no, but I didn't really ask her. I just started, had, had a full-time job, started investing on the side weekends, evenings, 15 hour weekends, just working hard, doing everything I could analyzing properties. And I had a job and I was making decent money. And she's like, why are you doing this? Like we have a good life. And I didn't paint the vision for her. So I ended up doing PowerPoint presentations for her for like four or five months in a row. Every couple of weeks, I'd create a whole new PowerPoint. PowerPoint presentation and explain why I was doing it, show the numbers, show the vision. So anyways, it's just kind of funny getting on the same page. Most guys are idiots and they just just do it and, and don't explain and articulate it. So I did that. But I, I'm, we're, we're, I'm we on have, the ladder, actually. You you did it the right way. I did not. My wife and I got in a big fight because I was a contractor at the time. And um, when I decided to get into real estate, I was like, I'm doing this. I didn't ask her. I, I, I just different dynamic in my relationship. I don't ask my wife for things. I just go, I'm doing this. My wife was like afraid because she's like, we have a good thing. What are you doing? Like, we want to have babies. Like what's going on here? What are you doing? You know? And what I had to do is I had to show her checks and show her proof and show her consistency. I had to prove to her that I was worthy of her trust, but I would have been way better off doing PowerPoint presentations. I could tell you that. Yeah. Well, my PowerPoint presentations pace came after some arguments. So it wasn't like I led with that. So uh, I, I, it took me a minute. Um, and so I have some guests in town. So we did a podcast giveaway. We kind of relaunched the podcast a little bit, changed the name. Um, and usually I have my business partner, Lucas, doing it with me. He runs. So he is like the CEO of our of our flipping company and our rental portfolio. And I'm the CEO of our education brand. So we kind of divide and conquer thing. It's one of those things where a little bit interesting having partners. We look at it as one plus one equals 100 kind of thing so it's really powerful for us but anyways i so i we did a podcast giveaway and you know somebody shared it and with a name in a hat and we draw we drew it and flew some people out here they're hanging out for a couple days so kind of that like uh boots on the ground thing but of course they're from new orleans hillary and gabriella and of course hillary's like yeah i met pace at uh event down in new orleans we actually you know uh hillary said yeah i was fortunate enough to have some one-on-one time with him we talked about scaling and he said you have all this money and this is what you should do and you're playing so i'm like of course, I'm talking to Pace, and of course, he's got his, his even the people that are coming that I paid to fly out here have met you and talked to you. So that uh, just kind of rounding out your brand and talking to people and connecting and shaking hands. Yeah, it's, it's crazy, working dude. because like, the people I flew out here are, are, are already have already talked to you. I know. And I and I always tell them they'll come to me and they go, should I join your mentorship? I'm like, no, don't don't join anything. I just whatever I can do to just spend time with you. And she never did. She never joined anything. She just got the help and the need and, um, you know, the needs that she had at the time satisfied. And she asked me, I remember the conversation. She asked me, like, why did you spend so much time with me? And I, I said, because I have a good memory. She says, what? What, what? what does a good memory have to do with how much time you spend with me? And I said, I remember when I needed help and nobody was there for me. And so I'm trying to be that person that I needed. And she's like, wow. And I... I think I sat down with her at a table at dinner and I probably talked to her for a good hour and 15 minutes. Like I gave her a lot of, a lot of time, but I also learned a lot of things from her too. So it was a good collaboration, a good conversation. But the other thing too, Sam, that's helpful for, you know, if you're educating people, the biggest challenge I had, which, you know, you probably have figured this out on your side, but at the biggest time I had, the biggest challenge I had is I knew Arizona real estate incredibly well. That's all I did, right? Arizona real estate, fix and flips, sub two, buy and hold, um, development, built communities, did all the things. And then a little bit of Texas, 
And then when people started asking me questions in my free Facebook group, when I launched that, I was like, I have no clue what the answer to that is because I've never done a deal there. And you know, as you know, real estate is very localized. It's like, Everybody talking about the market crashing right now. It's like, well, you know, I don't know. Like some areas are getting, they're settling in from a crazy hike, but other areas are actually going up. So you're going to ask me a question. You got to look at like local data. So traveling around a little bit and really getting to know the people that are boots on the ground there doing deals in New Orleans or doing deals in St. Louis or doing deals in Florida, wherever it is, and just sitting there absorbing actually empowers me to educate people on a national level way better than I could just by watching YouTube. Oh yeah, connecting and doing that. I've, I have noticed, and um, you probably have noticed this maybe before I, you've been in the game much longer. I started real estate in 2015-ish timeframe on the side, full-time 18. I didn't start producing content till 2020. Uh, my community's a, a little less than two years old. So I'm, 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 you know, a, probably a couple chapters behind in that, in that sense. But I realized that I got in this for the money. I feel like most people do. So I got in it for that. I was chasing money. I was trying to help people, but I was chasing money. And then you start to make enough money and you start to roll up your sleeves and work hard. And I feel like there's a ceiling that you hit until you, in, until you infuse mindset and the mindset of abundance and like really trying to help people. And, and the minute I, I talked about having a mindset of abundance and impacting people and providing solutions for probably a year. But about a year and a year and a half ago, I truly embraced it inside my heart. Like I truly was trying to help people and provide solutions and impact people and not worry about money and just lead with that. And it took me a while to get there, maybe because I'm stubborn, maybe it happened quicker than others. But at the minute I truly embraced that, is the minute I started to make more money than I knew what to do with, right? So it's like one of those things where if you just chase the money, it's shallow and it has its limitations. But if you chase solutions and truly inside of you, trying to help someone and not trying to get anything in return, A, you help more people and B, you end up filling up your bank account. You end up doing what you were trying to do, but most people can't see past that. Like they don't, it's not like a direct correlation always. Help them money, help them money. You, you don't get that. You help them, you help them, you help them. And then the money comes waving in. So anyways, that's something I realized about maybe a year ago about. So um, is that something, obviously you've come to that point. Is that something that uh, you can add some flavor to? Or is that something, how, when did you get to that point? I was at that point well before I launched an education um, community, and um, I figured that out. I actually was speaking on a stage five years ago. I've had my – sub two, my community has launched three and a half years ago, so this is about a year and a half before I ever you know, became a coach. And I had, But Jamil and I had already been on the road for like two years, right? We'd been flying around and doing all the things, and this – I was on stage at a place called um, – Whole scaling elite live, whole scaling. It was like wholesaling and scaling your business. I was like, all right, cool. It's in Houston. And I always do this thing when I'm on stage, I'll give, I'll do something. Whether I'll, like, I was at Jerome Maldonado's thing. I was like, whoever does this thing, I'll donate $10,000 to this charity on your behalf, you know, that kind of stuff. This was at the mm -hmm. time where I said, whoever asked the best question in the audience today, I will fly you out to Arizona and you can spend a couple of days with me at my office and like see behind the scenes. And this guy stands up, great guy, we still talk. He gets up and he said, how do you and Jamil help so many people without any expectations of money? My family, my upbringing, everything that I learned in the, in the hood, in the ghetto is protect your own, don't share, don't talk to people. 
And I said, you know, I realized about three years ago doing these meetups that if I just do free things for people and I help and I help and I help, people will be naturally inclined to bring deals to me. People will also be naturally inclined to want to work for me. And that I, my greatest recruiting mechanism is actually my social media. And people go, I want to work for a giver. I want to work for somebody who is doing these special things. My Everybody on my uh, team, all my executives, um, you know, we have 620 employees between our nine companies now. And, you know, all of those nine companies have a CEO and a COO. I'm not CEO or CEO of any of my businesses because I just, I'm an, a horrible manager of people. I just want to be friends with everybody. So we have people in charge of that. And everybody that's in my execs, like my C-suite in every single one of those businesses came because I attracted them from giving and giving and giving and they left companies. In fact, one of the names we dropped tonight or today on this podcast, somebody we brought up earlier, I won't say their name, one of their key people left them three months ago because they said the culture that you've created of being a go-giver is where I want to be. And they left that company and came over to me. Literally, the, all the best people I have in my organization are because I attracted them through giving to other people rather than putting a job ad out. And nobody wants to hear that answer. Nobody wants to hear these answers. The thing is, like, even when you ask, how did you build a, a following? The answers I give a lot of times, they are the true answers, but nobody wants to hear them because they're thinking, oh, I went to this website. I found these amazing people that I could hire on this website by clicking this button. And all of a sudden I had 18 people to interview. That's what people expect you to say once you hit success. But when you say something like, oh yeah, I had to fight for five years by being a giver first to attract one key person to my organization, people go, oh, there's no way I'm doing that. I quit. This is too hard. And I'm like, thank goodness. Because that, that's why there's no such thing as competition in my mind. There's no such thing as competition. It's simply the people who are willing to persist and stay consistent and outlast everybody else. They just all become my collaborators. And I'm like, why wouldn't we all collaborate? Like, why, Sam, why wouldn't you and I not collaborate? We're one of the very, very, very few people on the planet that have persisted long enough that there's no one else to hang out with at our levels. And so why would I compete with you? You're the only person at a level that I want to be friends with. You know what I'm saying? It's an interesting concept of people think there's competition, but there really is not. And the hard things are the, uh, the great, a great book to read is The Obstacle is the Way. And it really talks about doing the things that people can't do, won't do, don't do. And that's how you win. You it's so stupid and it's so simple, yet people are always looking for the easy button. Yeah, people, simple and easy are not synonyms, and people think that they are. I get that all the time. You make that sound so easy. No, I make it sound simple. Simple and easy are different. And if anybody asks me, like, what is the secret to success? A, there's a million different secrets, and B, I don't know half of them. But I just say the it's just not giving up when you fail. Like, people avoid failure, so they avoid success, similar to that obstacle, um, you know, analogy you just used. But I just I just continue to, to push through when most people won't. It's that simple. Like, everyone will reach a level of success if they don't give up that's all they have to do is not give up that's it that's the one thing you have to do that and you can do a million different things in a million different industries but if you do not give up 
you will eventually get there. That's all it takes. And people don't like to hear that because that that just it's not it's not tangible, right? You can't you can't sink your teeth in that. It's not a formula that they can plug and do uh, an algorithm or ask chat GPT it. And similar to your along the lines of you attracting people through your go giving. So we have a third of our our team members are our friends and family. And I've heard so many people say, don't do that. Avoid friends and family. Um, that's the opposite of what most people do. And I, I kind of like doing the opposite of what most people do in general. But like we have Lucas is my business partner's brother-in-law. He runs our flipping company. Um, you know, I, a lot of people that work for me, I've known since I was four and five years old. And as long as you're setting the right expectation and I would rather hire for culture and teach them a skill, they'll run through a wall for me. You don't get that for most people that you hire. So um, I, interesting on your take on that. And then we can move on a little bit is, is it, what would you say if you said, if I'd said, I, I, you know, 15 or 16 people that work for me, I, I've been friends with for 20 years. You think that's stupid? I think that's intermingling. What do you say about that? That would never work for me. And okay. That's why? The secret of life too is, um, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you why the, that won't work for me because you and I are different. It's not mm -hmm. that that's not one way or the other. I am a horrible manager of people. I want to be friends with everybody. And the larger you get, the more systems, processes, red tape, HR department, all of these things you have to have. Like I have multiple companies now that have over 50 employees, which now requires me to have like 30% of my employees to be in a protected class. You know, so like I have to have LGBT people that work for me. I have to have military people. I, I have to, regardless of whether I already have them or not, there's a physical requirement, a law that requires me to have them. So you start entering into this world of a lot of the challenges of law and employment and those types of things. And I'm one of these guys that when I have somebody I really like working for you, working for me, I'm like, Hey, I'll give you my YouTube income for the month as a bonus. And then all of a sudden the other employees are like, wait, why didn't I get that? And then my partners are like, dude, you cannot do that stuff. You cannot just give things to people and not give it to everybody else. I'm like, dude, just leave me out of the, just get me out of the freaking office. And so we have two big offices. I go there. I'm going to go to one office today for a four hour meeting with one person. I'll say hi to everybody, give them fist bumps. Hey guys, really appreciate you. Really appreciate you. And then I'll go to another office tomorrow, completely different company. Same thing. One meeting with my with my president. Fist bump, fist bump. Nice to see everybody. Love you guys. Appreciate you guys. And then I leave because I'm a horrible manager of people. I want to be their friends. I want to give them tickets. World Series was in Phoenix, Arizona. This is a really good example of how stupid I am. World Series is in Phoenix. And I was in the office, rarely in the office, but I was in the office and one of the girls on the, um, on our team says, oh my gosh, I, you know, World Series, Pace, are you going to go to the World Series? I was like, no, it's not really my thing. She's like, oh my gosh, I would die to go to the World Series. And do you know anybody that has tickets? And I, so I go, who wants to go to the World Series? And I spend like $20,000 buying tickets for people to go to the World Series because it's in Phoenix. How often are you going to be able to go to the freaking World Series in Phoenix, right? They haven't been to the World Series in 20 years. So I go spend 20 grand of my own personal money, not company money. And my partner calls me. He's like, dude, what did you do? I go, uh, just helping out the team. Like, I'm just doing the thing. He's like, you are so chaotic. I now have three people in the office complaining you didn't buy them tickets. I'm like, dude, just get me out of here. Just tell me not if you if people want to have meetings with me, just tell them to come to my house so I don't run into anybody else. I'm a horrible manager. 
I just want to, I overstep my bounds. I just know that about myself. And so I've had to create a company that protects me from myself. And one of those things is I do have one of my sisters that works for me. And I went to my partners and I said, I can never know how much she makes, what she does, whether she's getting raises, not getting raises, if she's doing a good job, if you fire her, I don't want to know about it. And when my sister got the, the interview, I said, I will not let you interview here unless you agree to these things. If you get fired, it's not for me. If you get this, I don't want my family to know about it. I don't want anybody to know about it because I have 12 siblings, right? And so my sister going to Thanksgiving and talking about how Pace's company fired her, I'm like, I just can't have that. I want, like you, Sam, I want everybody to like me. And so I'm so fearful of that, and it's happened to me time and time again that I just decided one day, I, you know what I need to do? I need to have my partners in charge of this, and they need to handle that stuff. So for me, it wouldn't work. For you, you have a different mindset and a different set of skills that I do not have. It sounds like they're like, Pace, don't even come to the office. If I was your partner, I'd be like, get out of here. Um, that's funny. So um, do you they want, a couple they want me to come to the office and say hi to everybody because it's exciting, but, you know, when it's like, oh, Pace is here. Hey, everybody's Pace is here. And I do this thing even a couple of weeks ago. They were planning something. Oh, hey, let me stop by. Let's all go to lunch together. OK, and it's really silly. But this is this is what happens. Right. I, I go to one of my offices. We had like 50 people in the, in the office and there were a few people that were at lunch break already. They left to go get lunch. And I just told the whole office, I go, hey, who wants to go get some sushi? Let's go. Let's go across the street and we'll get sushi. I'll, I'm buying. So like 38 people come with me to freaking sushi. We overwhelm the sushi joint, which is so fun and great. And then what happens is my the, some of the employees complain to my partner, Cody, because they don't I'm not there's no direct line of communication to me. They go and part, complain to Cody and go, I went to, I should have known, somebody should have told me that we were going to lunch. I'm like, it was on a whim, dude. Like, can I just live my life? And so it's a lot of that kind of stuff that I've just grown more and more fearful of being involved in anything. And if a family member or a friend ever worked at my company, I can guarantee you I would destroy that relationship because I'm an idiot. I'm an idiot too. I get it. So yeah, I think as we scale and grow, I, I think it's going to have to be a little bit more, a little bit more um, red taped, as you said. So no, that that's interesting. So I got two more questions for you, and then I'll then I'll let you get along your day. I know you, you got a four hour meeting, and you got to go like keep your hands out of your wallet when you go to the office and not buy something for somebody there. Just do that. Do that for me. Um. So uh, uh, one, do you hate to lose more, or do you love to win more? Which one drives you more, the, 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 the hatred of losing or the, the love of winning? Um, losing has never bothered me at all. I have this mental ability to turn emotions on and off. It is the craziest thing. So, like, if I'm deathly afraid of something, like skydiving, for example, I, just, I went skydiving for the first time in Tampa with uh, my community back in, like, April. And I was so afraid of it. I'm sitting there looking at the statistics and all this kind of stuff the night before and deathly afraid of it. So I have this ability. I go, oh, dude, why am I not just using my ability? I have this imagination that imagines a hose spigot that I is in my chest. Like, you know, a hose thing that comes off the wall on mm -hmm. a house you plug, you put the hose on, right? And I have this imagination that says that's my emotions dripping into my body through that hose spigot that's in my chest. It's the weirdest thing. 
So in my mind, I crank that really tight and close so that not even a drop of water or a drop of emotion is coming into my body and I can turn off all emotions when I'm doing something that's very, very scary. It takes me about five minutes to meditate to get to that point, but I can get to that point, step on big stages and jump out of an airplane and do this stuff and feel no emotion. Now, the problem with that is that you don't feel the, I didn't feel the elation, the excitement when I hit the ground. The guy was like, how was it? I go, I don't know. Didn't feel anything, right? So I don't try and use it unless I'm in these really bad situations. So there's been a lot of times I've lost. Like I've had people when I was a contractor, big customers of mine that went out of business that, you know, I've loaned money to millions of dollars and they go out of business and file bankruptcy. I lose all that money. And my wife is like, oh my gosh, this is devastating. I go, oh, no. It's not, it's not that devastating. I'll figure, we'll figure it out and I move on. She's like, how can you not feel when these things happen? I go, it's just a learning lesson, right? So I let myself feel when I win. And so I definitely win. I love winning way more than I hate losing because I don't hate losing. I like that. So I think that kind of ties to um, a little bit. I was on a podcast yesterday because similar to you, I don't ever say no to a podcast, um, you know, like coming up and trying to get help from people and people saying no just drove me the wrong way. So I'm I'm on podcasts, of, you know, several times a week. I don't even know who it is. I just hop on and we ch- and we jam just like you did with me. You know, you're like, I'm going to go on this lowly guys podcast. So um, so similar thing to that. Um, I, I feel like I I similar but different. So I feel like the thing that that is my superpower is a little D bag of a, of a way to phrase it. But what I feel like is one of my biggest strengths is it's similar to turning off that faucet, like you just said, but it's. I am able to have um, I'm able to have like perspective and like people view things through their lens, though the world is how you perceive it. Right. The reality is, is, is how you perceive things because that's how they view it. And that's that's right, because that's how they view it. But to be able to pull away and pull myself out of a situation and look at it from a 30,000 foot view before you jump out of the plane and be able to completely re- remove my emotions from a situation and to be able to practically look at something. I think it's similar to turning off the faucet like you're saying. Uh, so I kind of know that feeling, but that's huge for me. Very few people I feel like that I know can like remove themselves from a situation and make a decision. That's super easy for me to do. So anyways, I just wanted to add that on there and then we'll, we'll, we'll round it out and talk about, let's talk about the burrs and sub two. So um, I, I didn't know a ton about sub two a few years ago, and then I've learned a lot, so much from you about it. And at first I'm like, no seller is going to agree to letting you take over their mortgage, right? That That's just not a thing. And yet it's got to be a key situation situation where there's there's equity they trust you they got a low interest rate um they have to be willing to like do all that so there's too many hoops to jump and it's not scalable obviously now we've done a few and, and i understand that it is much easier than not easier but it's much more attainable and attackable than i originally thought because the burrs method right distressed property i'm paying cash super easy you're done you're over like you i can sell that pretty easily but selling the sub two is a little bit harder so I've come around on sub two and I'm definitely open to, to any type of strategy. So what would you say um, kind of just talk through the sub two versus the Burrs method and the scalability of it and the, the opportunities that present themselves? Because I'm I'm definitely uh, more of a sub two guy than I ever was. So I just want your take on the differences because you're you do everything, but you're known for sub two. I do everything, but I'm obviously known for the Burrs and, 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 and the debt side of that. So what would you uh, kind of say to those two types of strategies? Um, they, they all work, obviously. Um, there's times where they are amplified depending on what the economy is doing, but I can tell you like seller, we do a lot. I'm just 
people call me the sub two guy, but I'm really just the creative finance guy, executory mm -hmm. contracts, Morbid methods, innovation agreements, you know, seller finance, sub two, all lease options, all the things we do all of it. And that's, I teach all of those things, but sub two has obviously become the brand and the umbrella that all of those things fall underneath. Sub two is amplified heavily, especially in this market that we're in right now where people are being squeezed. Interest rates are basically impossible to go and get houses. And so what's great about creative finance is it's a great acquisition strategy and it's a wonderful disposition strategy too. I can sell on seller finance after I bought a property on, you know, subject to our seller finance. So it's an, it's an amazing strategy, but I don't call the same people that I call or work with on a burr. It's a different demographic. It's completely different, different demographic. And people just don't understand this. And people go, oh, well, this won't work for a burr and this won't work for a sub two. I'm like, guys, because you're dumb and you're not calling the specific list that you should be calling. So for example, if I want to get a sub two deal, I'm calling foreclosures because if they had a significant amount of equity, typically they've already sold the house with an agent. Typically, not all, all the time. A lot of times you'll have foreclosures. They're just ostriches. They have their heads stuck in the sand. But typically they have a lack of equity. They have a lot of arrears. Sub two can solve both of those problems very easily. Expired listings, same thing. Get a lot of sub two and seller finance deals out of expired listings. Um, people couldn't sell the house. Agent, and why? Well, same thing. Either they want too much or there's no equity. So it's either seller finance, they want too much money, or B, they have no equity, sub two, right? So we do both of those, expired listings and whatever else. On Burr, when we're doing Burr deals, which I'll probably do 10 this whole year, a couple of years ago, we did like 50. And I, I don't, here's why I don't like the Burr. I think it's way more complicated than a sub two deal. And here's why. I never knew how to build credit. I never knew how to do that. So I look at it and there's way more people involved. There's lenders involved. I've had a lot of lenders say, here's my quote, here's my rate, you know, here's my term sheet, here's the rate. And then in the process, it changes or they don't fulfill or they don't do something. I'm like, I calculated my freaking numbers based on this, dude. Um, you know, there's a lot of those things. So with sub two and seller finance, never have I used my credit. I've never had to show tax returns. I've never had to have a W-2 in order to qualify for a loan. I've never had to do any of those things. There's no banks involved. There's no appraisals involved. There's no inspections involved. And so there's a lot of those things that are just completely removed. And I look at sub two and seller finance is just way more simple. So for example, um, the even assumptions, I don't like assumptions either, right? A lot of people are, oh, you're the, you do creative finance. You must do a lot of assumptions. I, I'd say assumptions are a waste of your time. And here's, I'll give you a good example. I just closed on a one of two RV parks that I have on, I've had under contract for a couple of months. Normally, if I'm just using creative finance, I can close a deal from contract to close in less than two weeks very easily, right? Sometimes we can force it down to three days. You can't do that in a bird deal because you're doing a hard money loan, private money. You can close very quickly. That's simple. But when you go back and you refinance and try and pull your money out, that takes a while and that's a challenge, right? And you've got to show that you've got renters in there and you got to do all these things and every lender is different. So it gets complicated and which lender are you using and which lender are you using and who's getting a better, it's just complicated for my stupid brain. It's just so many moving parts. So it's just hard for me to do. Um, and with these RV parks, there's two of them. One is owned free and clear. And I closed on that yesterday. The other one is not owned free and clear. They're three miles away from each other in Montana. 
right by Glacier National Park, just a jewel of a location. And the one that is not owned free and clear, I told the seller, I said, you have an SBA loan on that. Just let me buy that subject too. Oh, I don't feel comfortable about it. I don't feel comfortable about it. I don't feel comfortable about it. Okay, well, come on. Why don't you feel comfortable? We go through weeks of this, like going back and forth. And finally, he goes, well, I would feel comfortable if you assumed the SBA loan because you can assume an SBA loan. I said, that's going to take nine months, just so you know. Oh, there's no way that's going to take nine months, Pace. That's not going to take nine months. I go, okay, we'll go through the assumption process, but you're going to find out a lot of things about the assumptions that you don't know. So here we are, month after month after month, going through the assumption, fourth month of the assumption, the SBA lender tells Eric, my seller, hey, just so you know, you are still the guarantor on the loan even after Pace assumes the loan. And Eric calls me, he goes, why didn't you tell me this? I go, I did, it's in this email. I said, this is why an assumption is a waste of our time. We could, have, we could close in a week if we just do it creative finance. He's like, then why does anybody do assumptions? I, uh, I don't know. I don't know why people do assumptions because the, the person, the seller who had the loan in their name still has to be the guarantor on the loan for five years after you assume the loan, which is crazy. So why didn't we just buy do it sub two? He goes, all right, let's just do the sub two. So there are challenges with creative finance. The challenges are not that it's hard. It's that the people you're communicating with have never heard of it before, right? And that becomes challenging. Whereas like on the Burr, that's simple. When I'm talking to a seller, like you said earlier, it's like, hey, I'm going to give you this price. We're going to pay cash. Even if it's not cash, you don't need to tell the seller you're using hard money or private money. But it's simple for them. Like, oh, yeah, they're just giving me cash at close of escrow. So simple for the seller. So the biggest challenge with creative finance is explaining it to people that have never heard it before. And then I can make another argument. The other argument I could make is when I'm talking to sellers that own more than you know, 12 doors, 20 doors, 50 doors, 100 doors, they know creative finance because they've used creative finance in order to acquire a lot of their portfolio. So when I go to buy their portfolio, they go, oh yeah, absolutely, I'll give you seller finance. I avoid or mitigate the majority of my capital gains tax. I um, get a higher purchase price. I don't have to have an agent list the property. We don't have to go through inspections or a survey on a big multifamily deal. I can avoid all this stuff and make way more money and charge you interest on the asset that I've owned for 20 years. Oh my gosh, all day long. I would upgrade from the landlord to the freaking lender all day long. This is great. Those sellers need no explanation, none. Sellers in single family, they do. The ones that are in foreclosure, they don't. And I'll tell you what happens in foreclosure. People in foreclosure are like, wait, you'll take this payment off my hands? Oh my gosh, where can I meet you? I'll just give you the keys. Okay, I've got five houses this week that somebody will just go, here's the keys to my house. Take them. I don't want this payment anymore. I don't have to convince those people of anything. I do have to disclose a lot and I have to say, hey, you run the risk of me dying and not paying the payment. You run the risk of this. You run the risk of that. You're cr but people in foreclosure don't ever ask me, well, what happens if you don't make the payment? Because they already haven't been making the payment. And so the only risk they run is I catch up their arrears, I get their loan back in good standing, and then I stop making the payment again. But what's the worst case scenario? They're already in the worst case scenario. They're about to lose the house. So sub two solves thousands and thousands and thousands of people's solutions that regular cash transactions don't solve. However, 
I'm not calling them to solve it with cash. I'm calling to solve it with creative. So the Burr strategy is amazing. It's just a different list. And so people compare and they go, it's Burr versus sub two. It's like, no, it should be this list versus that list. It's not sub two versus Burr. It's what list do you want to go after? Right. And I, I imagine you agree with all of this. Yeah, I think I, I look at it as it's just so we, um, you know, we're, we just buy here in St. Louis. Um, we are we're, we buy 250, 300 houses a year in our in our wholesale flipping business just in St. Louis. And having our we have six acquisitions reps uh, full time, having them just have more more, uh, you know, arrows in their quiver, being able to provide, you know, because we're just putting marketing out there. People call us and, you know, we don't we go after lists, but you don't know the situation. You get we get a lead. They call in the office. We do the research. We go visit them. Sometimes they have equity. Sometimes they don't foreclosure, all those things. So just allowing them and equipping them with the tools to be able to provide the best solution for the seller. Sometimes it's cash now. Sometimes they're not going to be able to convince. Sometimes it can be that novations. I've, you know, that's been hot recently. We've been doing that as well. So I think it's just more options for the seller and it's not versus it's and kind of thing. You, yeah. you can do both. And I'm giving them the options of we, we went from, you know, we'll list it for you to here's how much money you can put into it or we'll buy it cash. And now it's like, or we can get creative with it. So I think it just adds, just makes us more dangerous yeah. and makes us be able to provide better solution and, and help more people. That's how I kind of, I look there's at it a, now. There's a TV show I was watching um, recently. It's called the last of us. It's on HBO. Really great show. It's about a zombie apocalypse. And there's a scene where there's like three or four people on the ground one guy has basically a machete. A girl has a machine gun. Another guy has a, a pistol. And then there's a guy up in the house with a freaking rifle that's like sniping, right? And all of a sudden, these zombie, this zombie horde comes to them, and they're all different speeds, sizes, et cetera, with different aggressiveness. And based on the sword, the gun, the pistol, the machine gun, and the sniper, they were able to divide and conquer and basically attack the situation. And I'm like, oh, dude, that's real estate. Like, that's mm -hmm. how real estate works. You, if I'm going to battle and talk to sellers that have problematic situations, I want to have the burr in my pocket. I want to have sub two, novation, seller finance. I want to have lease options when it's appropriate. I want to be able to have as many people on the front line to attack that you know, horde of problems. Otherwise, you're just a one trick pony. As you know, the people that are struggling in this business right now are the one trick ponies, the maybe agents, right? Agents are very much a mm -hmm. one trick pony. And I'm sure, Sam, you guys even run into people that it's better for you to list the property rather than ever buy it. Maybe that's innovation for you guys. But you'll run into situations where, yeah, you know, some of the leads I'm talking to just need somebody to list the property for them. And if, you, if you're an agent and a wholesaler, you could do both. For me, I just pushed them over to my wife. My wife listed the properties. We made a good amount of money doing that for a long time. Then we started having kids. My wife didn't want to be the agent anymore. But I look at the agents right now, 60,000 agents left the real estate business this year. And it was because they're like, well, deals aren't just falling in our lap. And the t one tool I have is not working. So that must mean real estate doesn't work. It's like, no, you're just not equipped. You're trying to play golf, 18 holes of golf with only a putter. Like it's not possible. You'll look like an idiot. I would stop after the second hole too. So what yeah. you guys are doing at your company is doing it the right way. And that's why you guys are buying so many deals is because you guys have your golf bag is full of every different club to approach every different shot that you're going to run into. Yeah, for me, it's just like, 
whatever club gets me out of the woods on the right because I slice the heck out of the ball every time <laughs> off the tee. Um, so quickly, um, and then I want to round this out. Do you? So what do you? How do you get over the uh, the the do on sale clause that scares everybody? That like you know the you know you're taking over the mortgage and it, you're selling it, but the, it's the same mortgage. I, I saw a post you did the other day. There, there's like a way to get out of that, or there's a way around that. Yeah, yeah. I, t I teach. I actually have a couple of these videos on YouTube. Um, I don't give away my creative finance paperwork on how to solve these on YouTube, but um, I give that to my students in, in sub two. But the I've never seen somebody lose a house to the do on sale clause. And so you have to understand okay. what the do, do on sale clause truly is. And I just did a training the other day for my students where I said, hey, I just got the do on sale clause. Let me explain to you what the do on sale clause paperwork looks like when you receive the letter from the bank. This is what happens. The bank sends you a letter and they go, hey, we noticed that you, this home was sold and the loan wasn't paid off. We're going to give you 35 days to pay off the loan or else we're going to go after damages. Okay, cool, cool. I have 35 days to do something before the bank may or may not do anything. The number one thing we do is we call the bank and we go, yeah, we bought the property subject to, um, we're pay making the payments. 90% of the time, that's the solution. You just call the bank solved done mm -hmm. goes away they they're like oh okay got it we just didn't know what happened we just thought somebody made a mistake on escrow and we have a blanket button we push accelerate the loan what the heck why is this not paid off it's like nine out of ten times then you'll get banks like the one i'm currently going through i've got a smaller bank that just says no we don't care we want the we want the deed in the seller's name otherwise the due on sale clause is going to stay in place and we're going to go after you the other thing you have to understand about the due on sale clause is that the bank does not want to take the properties back, back because that's not what banks do. Banks are in business nope, to they're lend not landlords. money. Yeah. They're not landlords. And nor would you want to be. If you had billions of dollars, you wouldn't want to be a landlord either. You would rather lend money to landlords. That's a way better business model. So if they do take houses back, guess what they do? They, their Moody's credit rating goes down. The more foreclosures they have, that's what a do on sale clause is. It's a judicial foreclosure. They are required to foreclose on me to get the house back. They can't just take the house back. They have to take me to court, which takes six months and maybe $40,000. They don't want to do that. Okay. So the simple way to do this is you deed the property back. This is how my paperwork is structured. I mean, I always tell the sellers, I train my students to do the same thing. You tell the seller, hey, if we do get the due on sale clause, which you should plan on it, I'm what I'll do is I'll end up, and they already pre-signed the documents. What I'll end up doing is I'll deed the property back to you, and we will then reset up the structure to be either a lease option. This is this gets tricky. Either a lease option where the option price is the balance of the mortgage after I continue to make payments on it. So essentially a sub two without the deed transferring, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, or an executory contract. Okay, an executory contract, 50 states, all legal, different things. It's called something different in every state. Arizona is called agreement for sale, um, Texas land contract, contract for deed. All of these things that have existed in real estate for years and years and years and years, people have forgotten how to use them. So what I do is I'll deed the property back and I'll repurchase it on a land contract. Okay, What is a land contract? A land contract is giving me the ability to control the ownership of that property, but we just don't record it at the county recorder's office. We actually hold that deed in a safety deposit box at Chase or Wells Fargo or Bank of America, whoever, until I decide to refinance the property, sell the property, pay the property off, and then the I can now take the deed out of safety deposit box. Why does that help? 
Well, because if the deed is back in the seller's name, but now the physical document has already been signed off on, I technically own and control that real estate. It just doesn't show up on public record where the bank would see it, if that makes sense. And so that's the way that we reverse a due on sale clause if we end up having the due on sale clause happen. Awesome. That, that was a great little uh, little quick lesson. I appreciate that. So to round this out, I, I mean, I, I usually like, you know, how do people find you? You, you I mean, people know your name, Pace Morby, find you on any, any platform. Um, uh, I'm sure Instagram is your most interactive one, I would guess. And I know you have a great YouTube channel, but um, I would like to say that I used to tell. So for about uh, about last year, I've been telling people my community, my mentorship is um, there's other amazing ones out there, but you're not going to get more support from me. I, I'm in there. I teach it. Most people on the billboard don't actually teach inside of theirs. I know you do. So I would tell everybody like, you know, the other ones are great, but I've taken the best of all of them. And we have, you know, one-on-one -on -one calls. We have group calls. We have a Facebook group. We have all the videos. We have AI in there so you can sort the videos and search what you want to see and see exactly what you want. And we support you. And the, the coaches have 40 rentals, 50 rentals, like it's the best out there. And now I say, it's the best out there and, and paces is probably right up there with it. So I wanted to give you some kudos after hearing you talk <laughs> and everything that you that you did and everything and all the money and caring that you put into your community and the fact that it's a community and people are winning inside yours. I honestly do. I'm like, you know, it, it's right up there with paces. So I, I do. I do throw you out there a lot now to anybody I'm talking to or or new, or new community members that I do the onboardings with and and am involved. But I'm like, yeah, it's 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 up there. It's right up there with paces. So I wanted to give you some kudos. I, because, I always uh, tell people, you know. There's about maybe 10 really great, honest educators that are doing their best to amplify the experience for their students. There's about 10 of them. You're, you're definitely one of those 10. And I tell people to look at it more of like a college where I'm a professor of one thing, Sam's a professor of another thing. You're not going to get a college degree in real estate unless you go to all the professors, right? It's like you don't go to college and go to one math class and go, well, this math class is better than English class. It's like, well, actually they're different and you should take both classes in order to get your, your master's in real estate. So um, people ask me all the time, should I join this or should I join that? Um, a lot of the questions are, because I hang out with Jamil Damji a lot. We spend a lot of time together. Um, or even Ryan Pineda. People go, they'll DM me and they'll say, should I join your mentorship or their mentorship? And I go, join theirs first. I will always be here and you should take multiple classes. I have multiple coaches that teach me about how to raise my kids or how to do this or my finances or blah, 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 whatever it may be. I treat this like a college and everybody else should treat this like a college. I've, I've joined Ryan Pineda's courses. I paid for Steve train courses, Brent Daniels courses, um, Christina's. I, I personally get educated the same way that I ask people to get educated. I go to the person that's the source and um, the most credible person on that topic. And um, same thing here. I tell, I tell people all the time, I'm a huge fan of Sam. So I, I, I appreciate you having me on there and all those awesome kind words. Awesome. I appreciate it, man. Yeah. I, there's a lot of people in my community that are in your community and they have good things to say about it. So um, appreciate you doing this, man. Uh, do it again sometime. Anytime you want to come to St. Louis, I know you got a lot coming up. Congratulations on on the new kiddo coming up soon. So I know you're going to be taking a little hiatus there. But anytime you want to come to St. Louis, we'll we'll show you the ropes and excited to to meet. I'll come I'll come down there anytime you got some openings to chat and, and learn from you and connect with you more. So I really appreciate it, man. Thank you, brother. We should we should do a meetup in St. Louis. See if we can get it to like six, seven hundred people. That'd be sick. Let's do it. All right. See you, man. Later, brother. Thanks for listening to today's episode. 
We hope you got some major value from our conversation. If you love what you learn, make sure you like, rate, review the show, and help us spread the word by telling a friend. If you'd like to learn more about working with me inside one of my programs, we'll have those links in the show notes, along with all our social media handles, so you connect with us there for free. If there's a real estate question you'd like us to answer, feel free to send us a message, and we'll cover it in an upcoming show. 